Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I am your host, Joel Cherney. Today, I will be speaking with Rich Brownstein about his book, Holocaust Cinema Complete, a history and analysis of 400 films with a teaching guide. The book was published in 2021 by McFarland. Largely a culmination of his work on Holocaust movies, the book includes a lengthy section in which Rich Brownstein presents his methods for both research and reviews, along with long-form sections on the best movies on the Holocaust, as well as capsule reviews of many others. In our talk, we discuss his long study of the topic and review some of his major criticisms of some of the more well-known films that touched on the Holocaust. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Rich Brownstein. Hi, Rich. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you, Joel? I'm very good. Um, Every time I do one of these podcast interviews where there's a time difference, a major time difference, I like to point out that the 21st century allows us to do these kind of interviews very easily. Uh, Rich Brownstein is uh, who I'm talking to today. We are talking about his book, Holocaust Cinema Complete, a history and analysis of 400 films with a teaching guide and its uh, accompanying website, holocaustfilms.com. Rich is actually in Israel, and I'm in the United States, Eastern Time Zone, so we're pretty fair distance from each other, but yet we were able to put this together. So I'm really glad you're here to talk with me about your book and your and your work, Richard. Rich. Thank you for having me. I'm honored. So before we get more into the book, which I told you before we started recording feels like it's become your life's work in somewhere in the second part of your life, maybe, or maybe it's always been, but now it's pretty much... Um, the major part of your at least uh, professional life, you actually were born in the United States and worked in Hollywood for quite a while. Let's talk a little bit about that aspect of your life before you decided to move to Israel. Well, I uh, I got a degree uh, in psychology at Reed College in Portland, where uh, Steve Jobs dropped out of, and uh, briefly went to graduate school uh, in psychology, and then decided I wanted to. Uh, get into the entertainment industry. So I moved to Los Angeles and uh, became associated with uh, the Zucker brothers uh, who made Airplane and Naked Gun and um, pretty close with David Zucker, um, close enough to to be on the the actual real basketball uh, league uh, that he, he had before the movie at his house that included Peter Fairley, who made Green Book. Years ago, years and years ago. Uh, and um, so when David would go into production, then I would be uh, a part of it. And I was the uh, associate producer on uh, uh, one of his projects called For Goodness Sake, which um, was directed by a couple of unknown up and coming 
uh, people uh, directed and associate directed, assistant directed by uh, Matt Stone and Trey Parker. And, Who? <laughs> uh, and, uh, and one day they came up to me and uh, in production, my, my production name was Shlomo, a, a nickname gave, given to me by David Zucker. And, and Trey hands me a videotape and he says, Shlomo, take a look at this. And let me know what you think. I went home, I looked at it, I came back. It was five minutes. And I said, it's the funniest five minutes of anything I've ever seen in my entire life. And it was the pilot for South Park. Uh, and two weeks later, he had been, they had been signed by Comedy Central. And um, uh, in a couple of, of episodes, uh, they actually had a Shlomo character uh, in my honor. Uh, if you look at the passion of the Jew and jubilation. And they also credited me on their pilot episode, which was really nice. Um, so, uh, and then uh, to make a living, <laughs> I, uh, I, I had a, a little transcription company that did the, the field transcripts for a current affair. It started out as for a current affair. And, um, and then uh, it was mostly, it started during the OJ trial and um, and then branched out to Inside Edition, American Journal, and Access Hollywood, and I bought out my competitors, and um, and I consolidated the the three companies into one company called the Transcription Company of Burbank. And by the time I sold the company in two thousand three to move to Israel, I had a hundred employees and contractors, and and at the end of Nightline or Oprah. Uh, or NPR, uh, when they said, would you like a transcript of this show? That was my company. So um, it wasn't closed captioning. It was just actual transcripts that people could get the, the, with, the, you know, with the text of what went on. For those shows, it was, uh, it was the ads broadcast transcript. We also did closed captioning. We did live closed captioning, in fact, for some NBA games. Uh, but, we, but most of our work was long interviews like for vh1 behind the music or uh, espn classics uh, they go out and they shoot uh, many hours of, of interviews and they need a transcript with time code so that the editor can go in and lift off exactly what they're uh what they need and in, uh, in the edit bay and so we 90 percent of our business was the field transcripts of raw interviews for reality and documentary uh, uh, projects. So it was a more behind the scenes in many ways, but you still also had a public facing, as you point out, that transcripts of broadcasts, which, yeah. as I say, it's an interesting market that you helped to probably um, continue to change over time, too. It's probably, and I'm sure it was very important then, but I'm sure you probably made some innovations and some different ways of doing things. The concept of doing line tr live transcriptions would scare me to death. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, I, I, I pioneered the field, uh, including on the flight uh, insertion of time code, which before people had to sit there and write it in, and I figured out how to have it inserted into a transcript as people were typing. Another one of the projects that we had that you'll be particularly interested in is um, we took every physical script uh, from Paramount Pictures and all of their subsidiaries of every TV show and every movie from Paramount Pictures uh, and turned them into Microsoft Word documents, uh, over 50,000 scripts. 
and uh, we could we could take a script and within a minute and a half of having it turn it into a 99% accurate uh, 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 Word document uh, from from optical character recognition and software that I that I wrote. So I had the original Lucy scripts in my hand and Star Trek and Mork and Mindy and Gunsmoke and uh, and they went through our office and that that was. That was definitely like an archaeologist <laughs> looking at these, but yeah, it was it was an interesting life that I had in, in Hollywood. And uh, but but I wanted to raise my kids in Israel, and so they were four and seven when we made Aliyah when we moved here. So um, it was a decision that you decided it was time to make a lifestyle change, and more importantly, a life change, not just style, but also by moving to Israel, it was an important step to you, as you pointed out, to, for your, to, to raise your children in Israel. And so you picked up and left. Had you visited Israel before you moved there? Oh, many times. Yeah, okay, sure. So it wasn't and, and completely surprised. We, 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 and we moved during the, the, the second Intifada at the, at the height of it. So a lot of people thought we were crazy. Buses were blowing up. But, um, you know, it, it's dangerous everywhere from time to time. So once you moved to Israel, though, you continued to work, but now you completely changed over to academic uh, right. to, to a large extent. And this is now, and we'll get into this when we talk about the book, were you already thinking about or studying or making lists of Holocaust films before you even moved? Or is that something that really continued on once you got to Israel? Well, I started uh, being interested in the Holocaust when I saw when I was a, a, a kid, when I saw the first miniseries that was ever made called QB7, uh, which was uh, based on a Leon Uris novel. And it featured Anthony Hopkins as a Nazi doctor. Uh, and then I read the book and uh, when I was 16. Uh, and, uh, and, and so I started to study uh, the Holocaust then and continued uh, to the to, to the point where when I was in my early 20s, I was teaching it at uh, a local religious school and I was on uh, uh, the board of the Oregon Holocaust Resource Center, uh, certainly the only the only kid there. Uh, and uh, I remember we had a huge gala event for when Shoah was released, a two day event. Um, and I continued teaching it uh, uh, for, for years. Uh, and I also uh, kept notes about films for years, starting in my 20s uh, in a database. And, uh, uh, and when I got to Israel, um, uh, just serendipitously, I had a cousin who was on the Young Judea Year Course program, and uh, uh, which is a, a, the, a, a gap year program for, for people who, uh, instead of their first year of college. And uh, I asked her what classes she was taking, and she said she was taking a class about Jewish film. And I asked her what film she was studying. She said, Private Benjamin. And I was aghast. I was like, you, you could have been watching Fiddler on the Roof or Hester Street or uh, a million other films and, and this silly movie that is not a Jewish movie uh, uh, has a Jewish character, but that doesn't make it a Jewish movie. And so I, I happened to have uh, known the, 
the uh, education director of her program. And I said to him that I would uh, teach Holocaust films for free for his program. Um, and so I started and I um, uh, figured out a, a methodology that uh, made sense about Holocaust films. Uh, it, it took me, I, I did it for, for a long time and put it together. And, and um, the, the basic idea was that um, Holocaust films can be divided into four major categories, uh, which are victim films, films that, that take place during the Holocaust and primarily about a Jew, uh, where the protagonist is a Jew. Uh, Gentile films, which take place during the Holocaust, and the uh, uh, the protagonist is a Gentile, like Oscar Schindler, but also there are bad Gentiles in some films. So, uh, like in Conspiracy, where it's about the Vance Conference, so uh, two thirds of, of of Gentile films are righteous Gentile films, and one third aren't. And then after the Holocaust, if it's about a Holocaust survivor, it's a survivor film, like Harold and Maude. Uh, and after the Holocaust, if it's about a Nazi, then it's a perpetrator film, uh, like the boys from Brazil or, or marathon man. Um, and then there was a, this bonus category, uh, which I call tangential could be miscellaneous films that are obviously Holocaust films, but don't fit into that. And so for an example, that was Sophie's choice where Sophie is clearly a, a, a Polish. She she was she was only given Sophie's choice because she was Polish. If she was Jewish, she couldn't have saved one of her children. Uh, so she couldn't have been a Holocaust victim because, by definition, Holocaust victims are Jewish. And she wasn't a righteous Gentile. She didn't save anybody. She wasn't a perpetrator, uh, and she wasn't a survivor because survivors have to be Jewish. So uh, I added that category and other films that that were part of that are Inglorious Bastards, uh, Cabaret, which uh, is pre-German, gives the history, and, uh, and Julia. So films like that go into the tangential. And so this was uh, a, a way for, for us to be able to compare apples to apples in the class. Uh, and the principal way of, of, of testing the students was that they would write movie reviews. And uh, and so uh, it, it, it was an exercise in figuring out what the essential components of movie reviewing was, uh, were, and um, teaching basically movie, a, a movie review class about Jewish and Holocaust films. Uh, and from that, uh, the, the way I taught and, and what I taught became known to the, the education department at Yad Vashem, the, the world headquarters, the world center for Holocaust study in Jerusalem. And so starting uh, in 2014, I uh, have lectured to uh, seminars that come here to learn, mostly educators who come to learn uh, how to teach the Holocaust. And my specialty when I lecture is uh, using Holocaust films in the classroom and the history of Holocaust films. And I've taught dozens and dozens of classes of people all over the world uh, who, uh, uh, who, who now implement my, 
my theories in their classrooms. Of course, you've also written about the subject. This is not, the book is obviously, I I like to think of it as a culmination maybe (laughs) of your study, but maybe you just think it's a way station. But um, obviously 400 films will definitely cover a large period of time of of Holocaust films. And I'm going to guess that there may be films you didn't include either because you couldn't see them or there's no sign they even exist anymore or some other reason. But I suspect you probably hit most of them in those 400, would you think? Well, uh, the book is called Holocaust Cinema Complete, an analysis, a history analysis, 400 films and a teaching guide. It's um, it's actually narrative films. So let's be clear. We're talking right. narrative, not documentaries. Right. Uh, and it's uh, for the first 75 years of of, uh, of of the art from starting in 1945 through the end of 2019. And so necessarily, I don't have uh, uh, the great dictators not in there uh, and to be or not to be. So I had to start at a point where it was really about the Holocaust. Uh, but no, every film. Uh, that was that that I know of that I was able to identify as a Holocaust film is listed in the book. It's nine chapters, um, and if the if the film is unavailable, and there are about seventy five that, for one reason or another, are not available, uh, they're still listed. They're just not reviewed or analyzed as extensively, but. Um, Many films were released and never uh, were shown once at the premiere or went to a a film festival and were never seen again. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I have two appendix in the book. So the the first eight chapters of the book uh, are the history of the Holocaust Holocaust films and and uh, a pedagogical chapter. The ninth is a third of the book, which is reviews of the 52 films that I highly recommend and why they're, uh, uh, why within the context of the Holocaust they should be shown. And the last third of the book is an appendix, a a list of all 443 films, uh, plus a few that came out afterwards. Uh, that I included just because why not Uh, the summaries of each one of them uh, where you can get them if they're available the stars the awards the director the nationality the language the time and then there's a a final appendix a shorter one of films that people believe are holocaust films that I don't consider to be holocaust films Um, so uh, uh, that's that's a, a basic out, outline of, of of this, and I, I don't consider it a way station. I consider it a culmination. It's yeah, well, when you uh, use a word complete, I guess you're right. You have to assume that that's pretty where close you are. Um, as you pointed out, the initial part of the of the book, and it's probably about uh, you know maybe about 176 pages of the book, is your background information that you present. Uh, it includes some definitions, including the difference, you know, you define what you're including. It's it's basically just saying these are the rules of the road that I'm following. 
you've got some examples. You've, uh, in fact, there's a whole chapter, whole section that deals with, you call it the unavoidables, Elie Wiesel and Frank Oscar Schindler and Oscar Bate, 70. And, and, and then you go through some things there. And then you get before the list. So that's where, and it includes their curriculum planning. And this is the part that I, that I w- w- found so interesting. And as you as being an educator now, I can see where this is. And that is, is that you created it as part of the title. It even says it, uh, you know, student's guide, you know, uh, the ability, a teaching guide that will allow educators to use your um Material. So, was that really part of the plan all along? That you really wanted that the, the teacher's guide was an important past aspect of the work you did. Uh, the the original uh, plan was that I had given a lecture at Yad Vashem, and I had stated my uh, core uh, uh, what I contend to be still true to this day, which is that the greatest Holocaust film ever made was Tim Blake Nelson's The Gray Zone that it is uh, by far greater than any other Holocaust film, a film that was released in 2001 on the weekend of 9-11. And so no one ever heard of it, despite its starring Steve Buscemi and, and Harvey Keitel and David Arquette. Um, and, one, and, and my students said, can you write about this? Because you've written about other things. And I started to write about it. And it just occurred to me that I couldn't write uh, why it is the greatest film without giving context about all Holocaust films, because it, it's about context. Um, and um, so different chapters started to uh, pop up. It became become clear, different sections. Um, and having a pedagogical guide was just obvious to me um, that, that I had to include a pedagogical guide that included For me, it's really annoying when people say, well, how do I teach about Holocaust geography or how do I teach what's the best film for Auschwitz or what's the best film, animated film? So instead, in the teaching guide, one of the things I've done is I have a list of, of 80 topics and the films that correspond to each of those topics. But it's also... Uh, the teaching guide is is as much an admonition for teachers as it is um, a, a roadmap, an admonition to be clear that Holocaust movies are a supplement to Holocaust education. They are not Holocaust education. So if you're teaching about Auschwitz, then a Holocaust film uh, can cement the, the lessons, but they're not intended to be the lesson. Uh, and uh, so a great deal of that is, is uh, to, to make sure that teachers know that they have um, the right tools on hand to, to deal with this very heavy medicine that they're about to uh, put in front of the students. Um, and, then, and then I just couldn't resist while I was writing the book. Uh, there, there were some topics that just had to be dealt with. One of them was Schindler's List, because I don't recommend Schindler's List. And, and I couldn't just say, I don't recommend Schindler's List. I had to say, it, it had to be its own section. And, um, and I, I couldn't avoid uh, Roman Polanski. How do, you, how do you have a film that is as great 
uh, and honorable as the pianist uh, and not take on the, the question, certainly since Richard Wagner, the question of how do you deal with uh, the artist in light of his, his art? Uh, how do you deal with a Holocaust film that was made by a confessed child rapist? What are the teaching opportunities there? And so I have a chapter about Polanski uh, and uh, heavily uh, about Woody Allen and, um, and what are our responsibilities um, and it goes into the history of, of both of their filmmaking um, and asks a lot of questions about that. Um, and it, it was also impossible to write without giving a really uh, full explanation of the history of both Anne Frank's diary, uh, diary publications and the films, all of the films, because there have been over 20 of them. And they have evolved uh, and they're a microcosm of all Holocaust film development. Uh, and as I was writing it too, I was I was writing articles for the Jerusalem Post, uh, one of which was about why uh, there are so many Oscars that have uh, been given to Holocaust films. Why it is that uh, of the seventy-seven American-produced Holocaust films, uh, twenty-one have been nominated for at least one. Oscar, which is an outrageously high number. No other film genre comes close to that. Uh, and, and how it is that since 1960, every other year, at least one Holocaust film has been nominated as best foreign language film. Uh, so if you're a casual observer of the Oscars, then you believe that there is nothing but Holocaust films in the world, that the Holocaust films are, are, have flooded the world when uh, it, it, it's not really the case uh, that, that if there are 450 films made in 75 years by 45 countries, uh, including made for television movies, that's not an outrageously high number. Uh, uh, so it's all about context. That, that's, that's basically what I was trying to, to do in the book was keep everything within a context. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Right. Um, yeah, I've read some interviews and your points about you made very good points in many of the interviews. And I suggest if even though you talk about it in the book, too, is that your points about um, Schindler's List, I found to be very interesting. And, and the fact that you chose to compare it to Inglorious Bastards and actually favor more side towards that Inglorious Bastards wasn't meant to be historical. It was meant to be a a farce, but in some ways f meets the bill better than us, than than Schindler's List actually did. Well, that, that so there are, there are a couple of of ways to to, to talk about Schindler's List, and uh, and I should say, especially since a moment ago I was talking about Roman Polanski, that as a person, Steven Spielberg. Uh, I have nothing but respect, and and the 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 
fact that he turned over all the profits from Schindler's List, millions and millions of dollars, uh, to create the, United, the, the USC Shoah Foundation uh, is remarkable. And uh, his dedication to the Holocaust has been exemplary. And, um, and he's never done anything to embarrass the Jews, to embarrass uh, uh, the Holocaust. Um, putting that aside, you, what's on the screen is what matters. And, and the, the, the first, the overriding question is, uh, why make a film about a Nazi saving Jews from Nazis? Uh, you, you have a, uh, only, only Spielberg could do that. And he, 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 took, he took the most impossible situation as he does and made it possible. And it's a true story, but it wasn't the story of the Holocaust. And it's also true that more people have, um, ha have learned about the Holocaust because of Schindler's List than because of anything else except for the Holocaust miniseries that NBC broadcast in, in, in 1978. But neither of those are artistically uh, viable um, uh, Holocaust productions. Uh, so just because they're popular or they affect things or have changed society doesn't mean that they are uh, laudable. Um, the, the, there, there are many films that have been made about uh, other non-Jews who saved more people than Oscar Schindler uh, and, um, and who suffered uh, some, some, most until their death. Uh, Wallenberg, of course, was killed. Um, uh, and there, and yet, yet Spielberg was able to turn a Nazi who had participated while the first five and a half million Jews were killed. He had participated as a member of the Nazi party in uh, the in military intelligence. Um, what he did at the end was was wonderful, but. Uh, it's not the story. It's the, it, the Holocaust is a story of six million Jews being killed. Um, I also uh, think, from an, an artistic standpoint, that needing three and a quarter hours to tell an hour and a half story is um, uh, questionable. Uh, that the, the economy with which a storyteller tells his story is one of the factors that we use when we're judging films. Uh, the, there are, uh, th there's gratuitous, uh, violence in it only to show the violence. Uh, I'm, I, I'm, when I listen to the soundtrack, I, 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 I'm stunned that anybody would think that they, that, that this is the way with John Williams violins and Itzhak Perlman and all of that in the background that, that we have to rely on that to tell the story of the Holocaust, that that's, the, that's tugging on our heart. That, that it, 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 it so obviously just intended to make us uh, cry. The, the uh, scene at the end at the gravesite where we've deified Oscar Schindler in Israel with Spielberg's shadow over the grave and, and the actors are mated, paired with their, uh, the people who they represented is so solicitous and implies that the state of Israel 
was the outgrowth of, of the suffering of the Holocaust, which is not the Israeli point of view in any way. Um, even if, even if, if the Holocaust had something to do with the UN vote, that Israel was going to exist with or without the Holocaust. And, uh, and that scene is so egregious with the song uh, Yerushalayim Shel Zahav in the background, a song about the unification of Jerusalem after the Six Day War, having nothing to do with the Holocaust. It's so egregious that the Israeli version of the film uh, has a different song altogether. They have the Hanasenish song, Eli, Eli, uh, which is considered a Holocaust song. And finally, uh, he has a scene in it, uh, a, a gas chamber scene, uh, a, fa a, a fake out gas chamber scene that uh, it, it has nothing to do with reality. It implies that the Jews getting off the train knew, even if they whispered, but knew that they were going to uh, into a gas chamber, which is not, uh, there, there, no one knew. They knew that they may not be leaving Auschwitz or where they, they arrived alive, but it was one of the most closely held secrets. And so here you have 2000 people in a room thinking that the, the gas, they didn't know what gas was, thinking gas was gonna be flowing in out from the, uh, from, the spigots, nobody had that. It was no different from, from in Indiana Jones when he threw uh, Indy into a pit of snakes and just to scare the audience. Uh, and also the gas chamber was, was, there weren't dual purpose gas chambers and there weren't dual purpose showers. The gas chambers were hermetically sealed. They had spigots, but they, the, 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 no water ever flowed out of them. And the showers, which is what they were in, a real shower, they were not sealed, they were open, and there was nothing there that would imply anything else. And the, the film was, he was so accurate in so many ways uh, that to have made that was a gross mistake. The film was so accurate in some respects that another film was made in 2005 called Inheritance, a documentary about a woman who saw Schindler's List and realized that the commandant was her father. And then she, she finds the woman who was portrayed, the Jewish woman who was his slave at the, uh, at the camp and, and meets her at the camp and asks for forgiveness, which the Jewish woman does not give, can't give. Uh, so uh, I, 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 uh, I understand the historical importance of Schindler's List, but uh, I can't really advocate for it. Uh, and also, uh, uh, I, I, I can't imagine educators using that film with, with the sex and the violence in it. It, it, it. it blows my mind. And when educators tell me that they've edited it down or edited out the sex and the... And, and the violence, I said, then what are you doing? Why don't you just find a movie that, that can do the job? Why do you have to edit Steven Spielberg's work? Yeah, it's, it, of course, this is not even, I mean, obviously, in, in this example, we're talking about the Holocaust, but this has uh, always been an issue with the concepts of historical movies, movies that are supposedly based on real life events or real life situations, is that 
it's problematic to even, cons- you know, because as I think you read that wrote this someplace uh, in one of your materials that it has become norm for many people that such and such happened because of something they see in a film. And it doesn't have to always, you know, it doesn't have to be a Holocaust film. It could be another current event or an event that somehow because of a film, people have learned a new history that turns out not to be true. Well, yeah, my my pithy line uh, is that people walk out of Inglorious Bastards thinking that Adolf Hitler was killed in a movie theater by Ryan the Temp from The Office. <laughs> and uh, but but at the same time, I, I'm I make clear that that even historical reenactments that that every film is is fictional even if it's a historical reenactment. It is an interpretation of something that happened uh, that uh, is interpreted by a director and actors and a writer and editors and cinematographers of something that happened. It, uh, not having to do with the Holocaust, but you can see now uh, the, the tapes of, of the Let It Be sessions, the famous Beatles session. And you can see the arguments that they had. There are reenactments of those in Beatles movies. And, and if, you're, if you want an example of, of this interpretation, run the reenactments from Beatles movies next to the actual. And in some of them, it makes George look like a schmuck. And in some of them, it makes John look like a schmuck. Uh, and Paul looks bad in some. And, uh, but what you have, you have in the actual footage. Uh, a more concrete example is in Argo, uh, which got a lot of press and a lot of awards and did really well, but it was uh, renounced. It was, it was uh, the, the, the New Zealand government actually in their parliament, they denounced the film because it, it ignored their contribution to um, saving the American hostages that were uh, in in revolutionary Iran, uh, it, but it's true with uh, Munich, and it's true with every film. They're fictionalizations, and so the question isn't isn't it phys- fictional or isn't it fictional because they all are. The question is how much of the of the story that that gets distorted matters. Are you changing? material aspects of history uh, or if you're making a farce does it matter and it really doesn't matter in most cases in a farce uh, but if you're putting up something that that says it, it actually happened and you have more responsibility i would also say though uh, there are a, a few aspects of the gray zone that holocaust educators say it didn't happen that way like there wasn't a band uh, the, the, an orchestra that played over the, uh, the the entrance to the crematorium. True, there wasn't at Auschwitz. There was uh, there were reports that, that there were at uh, Belzig, uh, and it doesn't matter because it doesn't change the history of it. It's allegorical. There were orchestras that played uh, prisoners, labor prisoners, in and out of the camp every day. So whether they or over the gas chamber or at the entrance of the camp doesn't change materially what happened at Auschwitz. Uh, in that film, they, he, he marches the men and women in together and they have luggage. 
didn't happen like that. Does it change anything? No, no, they were still killed. So um, you have to pick and choose. I mean, you have to you, you have to be able to tell uh, if, if you're looking at something, does it actually change the history? And that didn't. the gas chamber scene does, and nobody cares about what Quentin Tarantino is representing. If you've ever seen a Tarantino film, you know, you know that Sharon Tate was killed when you went when you went to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. She wasn't killed in his film, but she was killed. So if you walk into a Tarantino film and you believe that that anything on the screen is going to be real, then that's on you. That's not on him. Yeah, and it's unfortunate that, as you're pointing out, is that some of these films were purposely meant to make a statement or to present truth, whatever that truth is, and that's where they can sometimes get in trouble, and that's where an an academic or or a teacher who's going to use a film to illustrate needs to use their, their voice as a teacher to properly put things in context so that even if they're going to show a film that has some um, issues, whether they be small or large, at least can point those things out, can, can use them as examples to their students about how you have to, all, when you look at a film, and in particular many of these that you've put together, you have to remember the context and also was a change made to make a point or was it just made to help uh, overall with with the plot or the story, but doesn't materially affect the overall truth? Well, I'll I'll give you two other examples, general examples. One is that there are many Holocaust films about righteous Gentiles that minimize the the, um, amount of participation by the locals with the Germans, the amount of collaboration and the resistance to helping Jews. Uh, for example, Anna Paquin stars in a film called The Courageous Heart of Irina Sendler, uh, a woman who saved many Jews. Uh, and there is one scene, I, I actually taught, I, I was the guest uh, lecturer for a high school class in Canada yesterday, and they had watched the film and I asked them, did it seem like the people who she was having, the, the Gentiles who were helping her, ever objected to this? Did they ever say, you know what, this might be dangerous. This might be something that we shouldn't do. Uh, or were they all pretty much in on this from the beginning and no one said it was a bad thing? And they said, yeah, uh, one person kind of sort of a little bit objected, but it wasn't like there was this huge, uh, uh, anybody acknowledged that they were about to be, that they, that, that, that they didn't really want to help the Jews, which was more of what happened in Poland than less. And um, the the other another theme that you see um, there are two short films that people can just download. They can see them on YouTube. Uh, one of them is called The Porcelain Unicorn, and the other one is called Toy Store to- Toy Toyland. Two German films shorts. Well, Toyland actually won uh, the Academy Award for best foreign language or for best short. And in the end unless you're really careful, you don't realize that the message of these two films is that the, the Holocaust wasn't committed by Germans. It was committed by Nazis, which was at one point a particularly German theme of education and filmmaking. I have to say that it's no longer, and that 
the vast majority of German films uh, do not espouse that corrupt notion. However, uh, if you're aware that that is a viewpoint, uh, uh, that, that, that that can be the agenda of some filmmakers, then you uh, can be aware of it and you can, you can be on guard for it and see it for what it is. Uh, thank goodness most films aren't like that. But these, these are, you, you can watch these short films and, 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 and see what, what that corrupt idea is. It's hard to talk about individual films, but there are a couple things I wanted to talk about. Um, obviously, some uh, Holocaust films are based on actually, other than the actual Holocaust, they're based on actual events that happened, such as we've been talking about to a large extent. And then there are other Holocaust films that uses it as a, the Holocaust as a, as the part of the story and so on. Um, when in your reviewing, and you meant, you talk about this in your introduction. So, you know, your, your, your early part, fiction versus nonfiction. So, um, do you feel like, and that, some of those films, the ones that aren't necessarily based on a particular actual event that, that occurred are, are in some ways not better, but more useful for uh, discussing? Or do you feel like it doesn't matter, it's more important that the film itself, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, is more important? I don't make a distinction in that way. I, I, I would tell you that there are many completely fictional films that are awesome, and there are many that suck. And the and and vice versa. Uh, so, uh, one of the greatest films ever made about the Holocaust is, uh, and and almost verbatim. Well, it's it's a it, it's called Conspiracy, right? Uh, and uh, it's a it, it it's a reenactment of the hour and a half uh, conference at the Vonsay conference, uh, the Vonsay uh, retreat in Berlin, where uh, Heydrich and Eichmann. Uh, let the uh, German judiciary and political and industrial and military uh, leaders know that the final solution is happening, uh, that Auschwitz is being built, that they're either on the, the train uh, in, in making this happen or they're going to be on the train, literally. Um, and um, it's a consolidation of power to uh, achieve the, the final solution. Th that it's brilliant. It stars Kenneth Branagh and Stanley Tucci and Colin Firth. And, um, and it's about the length of, of the conference. Um, there are, th there's a, another film that came out recently called 1945, which is brilliant. Uh, it, it's like, uh, it's shot like, uh, like um, High Noon or, or OK Corral, where two Jews after the Holocaust, right after the Holocaust, uh, co go back to their to the city uh, in Hungary that that um, they came from, where their shop had been um, uh, taken uh, after they were uh, deported and used by the locals, uh, their pharmacy and the locals believe that they're coming back to reclaim their property. Um, and uh, it's in black and white. And um, what happens there is um, great filmmaking and 
uh, whether it happened or not is, is, is irrelevant. There's another one called Three Days in April um, that examines this, the, the, the fascinating period of right when the, uh, right when the Nazis realized that it's over and that the uniform that they're wearing today is going to kill them tomorrow because the allies are about to come and real and, and especially on the eastern front but that that and the, the star that the jews are wearing is the only thing that could save them uh the moment when the third reich realizes that it's done uh and in this film which is based on something that actually happened in the town where it was shot and was at the 50 was made on the 50th anniversary of it three uh cattle cars full of jews just sort of end up in their um in their rail yard uh and what are they going to do with these jews uh so uh the, what i would say about the difference between fiction and nonfiction is that uh life is beautiful which won academy awards and was the second highest grossing foreign language film in American history to uh, Crouching Tiger until Parasite came out. So now the third highest grossing foreign film uh, killed dead the idea of fictional concentration camp representations uh, in, in film. Uh, since then, since Life is Beautiful, there's only been one major a uh, feature film that has been a fictionalized version of a concentration camp, which was a horrible film called The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, uh, which made us try to make us feel sorry for these really nice Germans who, whose son wandered into a gas chamber. Uh, but um, inherently, whether it's fictional or nonfiction, that, that's not the issue to me. The issue is, is it art? Is it not art? Uh, does it work? Does it not work? I'm completely open to any film. I'm totally open. Uh, I, I want every film to succeed, but uh, it, it has to do its job. I, I saw a film recently that was just released called The Auschwitz Report. And at the beginning of the film, the person, a, a, an, a, the person who is escaping throughout the film who's hiding and escaping is hanging from the gate, dead, hang, dying, hanging, dead, dying uh, from the gate of Auschwitz with a sign around his, his neck that says, hooray, welcome back, or I'm glad I'm back. And the, the rest of the film is about he, this guy and, and another guy who, who smuggled documents out of Auschwitz, true story, present at the end of the film, the last 15 minutes, present the documents to um the red cross and and explain how the red cross had been fooled throughout the entire war and how it 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 had a huge impact on how the holocaust was perceived he was never hung so and it's never explained why he's hanging there and the entire movie you're just waiting for him to be caught and hung no one has, no one can explain this to me except that I have to assume that they didn't have the goods. They didn't have the, the filmmaking ability to tell the story without that subterfuge. Without, with, 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 they, they couldn't figure out how to tell the story. There's another one that was just released, 
blew my mind. It's called Where is Anne Frank? And it was made by the great Israeli director, Ari Fullman, who made a Holocaust film that I highly recommend called Made in Israel. He went on to make, after Made in Israel, he made the very controversial, but really smart and really edgy and beautifully animated Waltz with Bashir, which takes on the Israeli military for, its, for the first uh, Lebanese war. He then made a, a movie that was like an acid trip with, uh, a, with Robin Wright, uh, which was a, her biography called The Congress. And then he made this animated film that I, I, I saw at the Jerusalem Film Festival opening night with the president of Israel uh, and the cast and crew. Uh, and it's, it's an animated version. So the, 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 the soul of Anne Frank's diary frees itself from the display case in the Anne Frank house. And then uh, it becomes a person who, if it leaves the, the facility, turns into a real breathing person. She steals the diary. And at the end, with everybody looking for her and the diary, she's on the roof with a bunch of refugees and she threatens to burn the diary if the refugees are not allowed to settle in Holland. It's not the story of the Holocaust. It's not the story of Anne Frank. It's not the story of anything except for a filmmaker who lost his way and people who funded it who wanted to somehow uh, co-opt the Holocaust into a, a refugee story. So I, 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 I would love to sit down with Ari Fullman and ask him how he could have made that film on the one hand and made in Israel on the other hand, but he won't. He, he, he hasn't answered my requests. The other thing, and, and you just touched on it there, there was one other section in the book I wanted to briefly mention, and that's um, what you called, uh, wait a second here, let me find it, sorry. Um, the second appendix, non-Holocaust films often miscategorized as Holocaust films. What do you, can you give me an example or two that would help illustrate what you meant by that particular section? Um, well, the book Thief is, is, is uh, often cited. I, 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 it, didn't, it didn't reach the level of, there wasn't enough Holocaust content in it for me to consider it. Um, people believe that Monuments Men uh, was, I, I don't see it. Uh, I don't see that that could have been. Uh, a lot of people, and, and I have a lot of fun with it, but a lot of people reflexively talk about The Sound of Music, um, which has nothing to do with the Holocaust. Uh, and uh, I don't know if you were able to read my review of Cabaret, uh, where I compare Cabaret and The Sound of Music. Um, but um, it, I, I had more fun writing that than anything else. Uh, and, and the basic idea there was that, uh, th that in one case you have a, a, a woman uh, who, who uh, is discovering the world uh, in Cabaret in, in, in ways that, that adults and, and breathing sentient people do and the other one you basically have the handmaid's tale where there's a a woman who is in a who who, who the, the church sends out to a man with with a lot of children to breed her he he's been a he was a nazi 
he was a not he 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 was a member of the Nazi Party, or at least he 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 supported them. In World War One, he 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 was a commander who sunk fourteen uh, Allied vessels, and um, and the only difference between uh, the, the Elizabeth Moss's character in The Handmaid's Tale and Maria von Trapp is that Maria von Trapp was too stupid to realize that she had been um, sold off by the church to 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 be the nanny and the and the breeder for this guy um and um and and people love that film so much and i say fine prove it sit down and watch that movie without a remote control i dare you see if you can make it through that film because you can't you won't and unless you have childhood memories that make you love that film um it doesn't stand up it's just uh, it, it's insipid and it so insipid that Christopher Plummer hated it. He he had to be drunk to uh, do the Edelweiss scene. He, he said he called the music S and M, and the, the the sound of mucus. Um, so uh, that was the, the, those are some of the films. But the, the, some of them uh, in that appendix were were shorts, and some of them were uh, miniseries and. Um, uh, so they weren't. The, some of them had Holocaust content. They just weren't the format that uh, uh, of of a feature film or made for television film. Well, I will tell you that uh, this. What is so great about this book, and we're talking about Holocaust Cinema Complete: A History and Analysis of 400 Films with a Teaching Guide by Rich Brownstein, is that it works on multiple levels. Obviously, for feature film. For understanding film, for film people, it has a purpose and a love and, and interest. But then also the educational aspect and the social aspect and the historical aspect of the book, where understanding how these things all work together and how we it's it's just another example of how feature film and hist and history need to be tread light tread carefully with because you can't always you know, because of the issues about film being so important to, you know, in the sense of how a film can sometimes completely change a narrative or a belief. And so, but just as importantly on an educational level for teachers who want to teach the Holocaust and want to use films or are, are teaching the Holocaust and want to use films or just teaching history in the period. And, and, and I think that's one of the things that I found so useful in the book. And frankly, the fact that you have a companion website, holocaustfilms.com, is also great because there's a lot of useful information there, even that's outside of the book, uh, some videos and some things that people can use to learn more about your points so that when they do think about teaching some of this material, they have a solid underpinning of, of your reasons and more than you even wrote in the book. Well, I appreciate that. I, I, um, I've had a good amount of success with the book within the Jewish community and the Israeli community and the Holocaust community. Um, uh, I, I haven't been able to breach, uh, aside from you and, and a few other very kind people, into uh, the general public. Uh, so uh, anybody who has any ideas about how I can get out there um, I, uh, you can contact me at holocaustfilms.com. 
Uh, I'd love to hear from you either way, but uh, it, it's the, there's this belief in the world that uh, if you're a scholar and can write a book, that you also can market and also have any idea about anything except for what you do. And it's wrong. We don't. Uh, I don't. Uh, so uh, I'm I'm open to anybody who might uh, have an idea uh, about wh- who who to talk to and who to present to and. Uh, and I'm grateful for any help that, uh, and and for you having put me on is is very kind. Well, as I say, as I mentioned to you even before we started, I get you know I can choose pretty much the ones the books I choose to interview with because I want to make sure it's a subject that I can feel like I can converse on. I somebody who wants to talk about some obscure aspect of film is great, but if I can't. If it's if it's I'm having problems understanding it, then I'd rather talk to someone who uh, with with a way that things make sense to me a little more, which is part of the reason why uh, when you reached out, I felt this was a book that uh, and as I say, partly because as an educator, I I like anything that allows people, uh, teachers to be able to uh, find ways to um, use film and particularly of films uh, of such importance as the ones you talk about in your book. Thank you. It's, it's been such a joy, and you're a very generous uh, uh, interviewer, letting me go on for so long. And, well, uh, you're, yeah. you, you obviously can tell you're an expert at the material, and that's an important aspect. And, and most of my favorite authors are the ones that seem to have spent a inordinate, I don't want to say inordinate because that's not fair. It's not, it's not inordinate. It's important. Um, large amounts of time and, and, and with something that culminates as, as your, as your book did. So hopefully we'll find a better audience in this, you know, in various parts, you know, of our listening audience, because I think it's an important book. So thank you so much for your time and good luck going forward. Joel, thank you. Thank you very much. My great thanks to Rich Brownstein for his time. We will be recording a follow-up interview in which Rich will discuss the best Holocaust films in detail. I hope you will look forward to that episode. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network.